Hi everybody, my name is Ian and I'm doing my undergraduate honors thesis on the use of explainable AI. I'm doing this thesis in part to promote the upcoming workshop on explainable AI and health that is part of the larger web conference 2022. In this episode, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Benjamin Glicksberg. We discuss topics such as multimodal data sets, FDA regulatory policy, and the future of explainable AI and clinical decision making. With that, enjoy the show. Uh, absolutely. So uh, my name is uh, Ben Luxburg. Um, I'm an assistant professor at uh, the Icon School of Medicine uh, at Mount Sinai, uh, which is located in, uh, in New York. Uh, I'm uh, primarily affiliated with uh, the Hassel Plotner uh, Institute for Digital Health, but also in uh, a variety of departments, uh, genetics and genomic sciences, medicine, and AI and human health. And uh, great, to, great to speak with you. What would you say is the main focus of your lab right now? Absolutely. So uh, it's, a, it's a challenging question because uh, there's a lot, uh, a lot that we do. Um, we are definitely um, in, in the field of, of data science for uh, precision medicine. So uh, coupling a lot of different uh, modalities uh, of patient data, ranging from uh, multi-omics to uh, clinical data, to imaging, to text, and to try to um, optimize uh, uh, and build models that can help with uh, uh, to help the physician and clinical practitioner help the patient. So we do a lot of uh, machine learning and, and deep learning, and uh, depending on the the, the, the context, it, it varies a lot of clinical domains. Mostly, we're in the cardiovascular space, but also uh, touch upon a num number of other uh, clinical domains as well. One thing that I think you're highlighting is um, your use of multimodal data sets. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we know that uh, uh, health and, and uh, uh, disease are very complicated and nuanced uh, uh, topics that, that really span uh, a lot of our existence, right? So, of course, there's uh, a genetic component to many diseases. Of course, there's environmental components. And really, when we try to build models, uh, for instance, of risk estimation or uh, uh, um, predicting sequelae or adverse outcomes, really taking into account uh, uh, the more 360 view of the patient is becoming uh, increasingly uh, clear that it's necessary. Now, uh, the biggest challenge, of course, is that uh, the data uh, don't really exist for, for all these modalities. Uh, 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 for the same patient for the same time. So a lot of what my group does is work on um, real world data. So data that was collected uh, as part of, um, uh, not as part of a trial, but more of just everyday living and interactions with health systems and finding out the most effective ways of leveraging them uh, and combining them in the method that produces the most impact and robustness, but also the uh, least uh, biases and um, uh, issues uh, from them. Could you highlight um, one project or paper that uh, exemplifies this use of uh, multiple modalities? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, there's a, a lot that I could speak about, but really um, one that highlights uh, the power of having multiple modalities of patient data and really uh, uh, why it's necessary um, is a recent uh, uh, work that was led by a, a former medical student, uh, Suleiman 
Sumani, who's uh, now uh, a um, resident at Stanford, uh, which uh, we try to classify uh, pulmonary embolism, so blood clots in the lungs, from uh, routine uh, um, data points that would be uh, that would be acquired if someone was entering uh, some kind of emergency room or presenting some kind of emergency room uh, uh, and giving signs that, that may be indicative of it. The problem with um, pulmonary embolism, of course, is that the symptoms are very nonspecific. And there's such a high risk of things going wrong that um, if, if this goes undetected or misdiagnosed, that um, clinical practitioners want to be uh, exceedingly careful uh, for um, not missing um, uh, uh, you know, something like that. So there are, uh, based on some kind of uh, guidelines and heuristics and scores, uh, there are typically follow-up uh, um, imaging tests that are done. There's blood tests and imaging tests that are done to really confirm whether someone has um, a clot or whether it's you know something else. It could be uh, some kind of heart issue or could be even a psychological issue. So uh, uh, the problem is that, that that process of diagnosis and screening is both nonspecific and it can be quite time consuming and potentially expensive. So uh, one thing that would be helpful for a clinical practitioner is to provide some kind of uh, what we can call computer-aided diagnosis. So some, some uh, ability to, to crunch a lot of data together um, in a way that we can provide maybe some recommendations on, for instance, uh, uh, a priority or, or whether even someone needs um, a follow-up screening. Of course, the latter uh, one is a, a, a very big issue that, that would never happen unless uh, a lot of uh, follow-up testing that have been done. But you know, one challenge that uh, occurs is that there's a lot of data that a clinical practitioner has to think about at once. And uh, there may be ways uh, that a model can, can crunch and digest and focus on the interactions and, and nonlinear interactions of many data points at once that, that may be hard for a human uh, to, to do. So what uh, this project really was, was focused on is seeing in uh, uh, an electric, uh, electrocardiogram, which is uh, um, electrodes that measure the electrical activity of the heart in a very short time uh, sequence, but it's really used to, to see if there's uh, any um, uh, rhythm uh, potential disorders with the electrical activity, uh, whether that may, there may be some signs of uh, right heart strain uh, in it that would occur because of a, a pulmonary embolism. And that information, it's, it's, uh, uh, these are waveforms from many different leads, provide a lot of dimensions of information that if we can um, you know, build a deep learning model uh, on this combined with uh, clinical data and demographic data, uh, can we have some kind of risk assessment of how likely uh, uh, is um, a pulmonary embolism in this high to moderate to high risk uh, uh, cohort? Of course, ideally, it'd be good to screen to the general population, either maybe uh, with wearables or some other kind of continuous recording mechanism. But for now, we were able to accomplish um, 
uh, a pretty encouraging results from uh, a classification task uh, using these various modalities and are in the process of trying to expand it and do some external validation and robustness testing. Since my thesis is on explainable AI, that uh, leads me to kind of question, did you have incorporate any uh, AI interpretability or uh, AI explainability in this project? Yeah, I mean, we, we actually did have um, some aspects of explainability uh, in this project because um, uh, the way the model uh, was built was um, doing dimensionality reduction of the uh, convolutional neural net of the uh, ECG data and feeding that as a, as a principal component, uh, as principal components into an XGBoost model, uh, along with the other uh, um, clinical features. And we are able to get um, uh, a, a Shapley uh, plot of uh, feature importance, which can be used um, as uh, um, uh, giving some indication of what the model is, is seeing as important. Now, this goes, of course, to a bigger uh, and, and, and uh, very interesting question of, of what is the role of explainability and interpretability in uh, healthcare modeling? Uh, whether uh, it's how important is it and whether it's necessary. Uh, I think there's a, a big debate um, from multiple ends uh, of the spectrums uh, that first say that, you know, on one hand, it should be absolutely pertinent to every model that you, you're able to show that what you're learning is salient and, and is relevant and giving the clinical practitioner some guide to uh, 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 understanding what this you know, black box is doing. On the other hand, uh, I think maybe on the more uh, computer science side, uh, they understand that a lot of it is post hoc uh, explainability. And the fact that uh, just as, you know, humans have difficulties explaining every nuance and ration for every decision that they make, that maybe it's not fair to expect that you know, some kind of model can uh, perfectly uh, elucidate every single pixel and combination with every other data point in, in, in what it's, and uh, uh, how it's der deriving their prediction. I do see a role uh, of explainability. Um, uh, I would say explainability is probably um, most important as the facet of trust that, um, uh, that what is being learned is not, for instance, uh, some kind of artifact. Uh, even if it's a simple fact of, uh, are, are you not, is, is the model not learning something incorrect would be useful, right? And, and there's, there's good examples of this, for instance, on x-rays, uh, you can have metadata in the header that, that the model, I mean, the model is gonna be the most optimized, right? It's gonna, it doesn't know that it's cheating or not. It's just going to find the way to learn the information uh, uh, via the, the path of least resistance. So for instance, if there's metadata in the header or if there's uh, some kind of sign, whether uh, uh, you know, a certain machine is used, if there's a higher suspicion of, of a fracture versus not, these are not biological and clinical things. These are pure artifacts of the process that uh, is not necessarily reliant on uh, a really data-driven uh, diagnosis. So I think for that fact alone, providing something is 
is useful. Now, the challenge is, is because there could be, you know, uh, um, hundreds of layers and thousands of nodes per layer and connecting, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of data points uh, via different weights and biases that really understanding uh, a, a, a true nuance to why, especially if you have multiple modalities of data, uh, having a, a true explainability that is, that is intuitive may not be feasible just because the patterns may be so complex. I mean, these are you know, nonlinear uh, interactions that it just may not be possible. Um, I have kind of a feeling that we're going to be somewhere in the middle. And um, I, I know that, that no one would want to, we're not at a place right now where we're of course building 100% robust generalizable models. So because we can't be sure of that, then probably some kind of explainability is good just for the reason of, of, of sanity checks. Awesome. You also, um, you mentioned that the role of, in medicine, the role of false negatives being perhaps a much bigger problem than false positives. I'm just curious if that changes how you design an algorithm or how you design a presentation to a physician. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's not always the case, right? So, so there, there, there are certain cases where, um, you know, uh, having a false positive is, is disastrous, right? So, you know, having, having a false positive uh, may lead to some procedure that may be unnecessary. And uh, uh, that alone can have devastating consequences. It's almost like, you know, by, by virtue of having this knowledge, you have been harmed. Um, so I, I would say that every situation is specific to the clinical need and the question and how it fits into clinical workflow. So there's always a trade-off, right? And that trade-off is embedded in um, model design, uh, absolutely. Um, and there's um, diff different calibrations that you could do to kind of optimize what you want to optimize. Uh, for an explainable um, approach, for the explainable AI approach, I don't, I don't know uh, if that would change anything, but definitely from a model design perspective, uh, there is always something to optimize. And uh, each situation, clinical scenario is going to have kind of a different trade-off. Uh, the sad the sad reality of, of, of the, of, you know, the nature of it. Okay. This is going to be a little bit more of a fun blue sky question. Um, but, uh, if you had one billboard that you could put on a really busy intersection, um, just to put out a message to the, the general public about AI or explainable AI, what would you put on that billboard? Well, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. It's almost like the, the elevator pitch uh, question. Uh, I guess there's always this, this uh, tension, right? Between um, AI in the public space, right? Versus the, the hope versus hype where, uh, you know, <laughs> one day uh, AI is gonna solve everything and on the next day, it is uh, useless and it it's, uh, creates more harm than good. Um, I guess the, the, the important message that I'd 
like to convey is that you know it's 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 still pretty early on uh, in uh, the um, uh, envelopment of of AI in the clinical space, and I, I mean because of the, how quickly the field moves, it it feels like it's been here forever, but it, it's still really early on. And I also think so. So the message is that uh, you know there's cautious optimism is is what I would say, and I think with um, more data being generated that is amenable to modeling and more data that is less biased that's being generated, uh, that I believe is going to lead to, uh, you know, maybe not this, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of these sci-fi fantasies of us being in, uh, you know, diagnose cancer and remove it with a, you know, with a, with a smartphone. But uh, I do think that it, it will be more so beneficial, especially also as, as AI education, computer science education, uh, um, uh, exposure gets added to clinical curricula. I think that's another uh, really good facet of what's happening. Yeah, could you talk more about, uh, about that, about physicians um, and maybe perhaps medical students and residents having more yeah. computational stuff integrated into their curriculum? Oh yeah. Um, first off, I, I work with a number of exceedingly talented medical students who actually have computer science backgrounds and um, are coming in. They're coming in hot. They they're well prepared. They know what to do. Uh, uh, um, they're absolutely exceptional. I also noticed the trend that a lot of students come to me uh, that that want to desperately get involved with with some kind of informatics. Uh, and, and machine learning work. Um, I work with a number of residents, uh, a number of fellows, a number of attendings. Um, I, I noticed um, there, and, and I noticed that there's 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 more um, classes and seminars and education offerings that are part of curricula. Uh, Mount Sinai is offering a number of. We actually have a new. Uh, well, it's a PhD program, but it's a it's an AI and emerging technologies PhD program. Uh, med students can audit. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna lead a seminar class for residents about how to interpret, how to read uh, AI and health paper uh, uh, to get to the gist of of what's what's really being claimed versus feasible. How to uh, understand, much like how you would read how there's training on how to interpret a clinical trial and biostatistics. How do you accurately and 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 uh, uh, fairly assess um, claims made in the paper. Um, I also, you know, I think there's still a split in, in the physician space uh, with um, people being quite against it um, for <laughs> possibly very good reason. And then a lot of people that are, are embracing. Uh, and, and I think there's still some disconnect about uh, how do we frame problems that are A, both clinically useful but B, actually where machine learning can be helpful. And or C, do you have the data that you need to actually do it uh, uh, and the right data? So I think there's still some kind of calibration that needs to be done between all these things. But, you know, I, I'm definitely noticing the trend that's getting, uh, you know, the errors are, uh, the ranges, the variability is reducing until, uh, until it's, it's all kind of coming together and, and uh, I, I'm, I'm quite hopeful uh, that it's going to be very beneficial for the field.
it's interesting because you're at the intersection of two very different fields, right? With, uh, you know, computational sciences kind of moving incredibly quickly and then medical sciences requiring like any new innovation or any new treatment takes five to seven years of FDA approval and clinical trials. So yeah, I'm, ju I'm just curious to see, like, do you, do you find like cultural differences between computer scientists and, and medical physicians? Do you find like, I'm, I'm curious what you think about being at the intersection of those two very different fields. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a clinician, but, and, and also I wouldn't fully call myself a computer scientist, but I, I do have lenses into, into both the worlds. Um, I mean, you're right. Uh, uh, um, and not to say that computer science is not rigorous. I know that the rigor that goes into building up complex uh, infrastructure and systems are incredibly complicated, but I think it's a different type of complication than what goes into uh, really um, trustworthy um, uh, uh, medical developments, right? The FDA, I've, I've been involved in FDA submissions uh, um, for like, for instance, 510K expansions. The process is challenging, but it's, it's uh, warranted in many ways. And, and of course, um, uh, uh, you know, the goal is to have a really um, true insight into what's being proposed and, and for safety and efficacy. And, and is that safe and efficacious for all people? Uh, you know, you need to have randomized control trials, ideally, but of course it's not always feasible for, for uh, you know, two arms. Um, so I don't have a good answer, but I do think that um, there will be room for uh, augmenting or, yeah, I guess, I guess supplementing maybe is the better word, supplementing the regulatory procedure with um, uh, uh, um, informatics-based uh, assessments. And, and you know, there, there is a whole branch for real world evidence. And there's actually a whole branch for software as a medical device. So, I mean, the FDA are clearly thinking about this. Uh, there are pathways that are necessary. For instance, you need to show generalization and, and robustness against the number of biases uh, that, that are already being actively thought about. So it's clearly gonna enter our domain. Uh, there's already FDA clearances for a number of, uh, of, of, of software as a medical device application. So it's clearly that, that we're already here and I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. So uh, I took a class on FDA regulatory policy for life sciences. And one thing that just really confused me, maybe you could help me understand. And I could just, this just could be out of my, my depth here. But the question is basically like AI algorithms, um, you know, they learn, they change, right? So does the, when the FDA approves an algorithmic kind of solution uh, for as, you know, software as a medical device, um, how do they uh, um, approve it just for that algorithm in 2021? Or like, how does that work? Do you see what I'm saying? That, that's a f phenomenal question. And actually it's, it's not just for the FDA, it's for really all prospective models, deployed models. Uh, and there's almost an entire separate field on continuous monitoring and uh, uh, continuous updating of models. There, there's, there's a few 
issues here. So, so I, the short answer is, um, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I believe that um, uh, 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 software as a medical device is uh, originally approved for uh, one instantiation, which you then validate. But I believe there are provisions that you have to do these checks to, to see if it's still um, viable. And so the, the biases that are, are, are involved is one, by applying a model on a um, population, uh, you're essentially now uh, polluting it because now it's it's not a it, you're not you're not built you're not building if you want to retrain you can't build on a, a clean data set without intervention. Of course, no data set is cleaner than in the clinical space, um, except a randomized control trial. But um, uh, and another issue is of course on the population and the data. If there is a shift in the population or data distribution or something like COVID happening, which, which uh, you know, didn't really happen to that effect before, clearly the model is probably not going to work as well in this population. So there, there's a number of protections that need to be done. Um, and I believe that, you know, people are actively thinking about this, especially in a continuous deployment uh, um, environment. Yeah, so it's, it's a fantastic question. Okay, so this is going to be more of a general question, but what do you see as the future issues for explainable AI in general? Yeah, that, that's uh, a really uh, uh, interesting point about uh, both in the future and now. Uh, uh, some of the biggest issues, of course, are um, uh, issues of bias, right? So um, you've We've all heard the terms garbage in, garbage out. If you have data that is not representative of uh, 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 different subgroups and populations, then what's gonna be learned and what's gonna be explained is uh, not, not real, right? It's, it's not a real, it, it's real in the sense of what these data are, but it's not real, for instance, if you wanna think about uh, uh, all patients with uh, kidney uh, issues, right? It, it's just on the population that we have uh, data for. And uh, the issues are there are about such as uh, social determinants of health, uh, uh, availability, access, who are the people coming into the hospital, who aren't, why aren't they? So one of the, uh, one of the issues is, yeah, you can explain a model, but if the model's bad uh, and, and, and uh, not fair, then uh, the explanations aren't really useful. In uh, kind of going off that point a little bit, we can have very complex, explainable um, uh, 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 um, models that, that show a lot of different feature importance scores for complex interactions between things. But if the clinical practitioner doesn't find it useful, then that's really one of the most important parts, right? It's, it's, it's yes, you can explain something, but it, it has to be useful explanation. And I guess, you know, we could talk for a lot on this, but I guess the last point that I just want to make is um, going off the, the data. So, you know, when we think of when we're building models, uh, we're building models really on, uh, uh, certain patient populations, and those don't have to be fully representative 
of, of the general population, uh, but also it's, it's also healthcare operations that we're modeling, right? We're, we're sometimes modeling, we're including in there uh, decisions that clinicians made. So we're cheating a little bit, um, but also we're, 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 we're focused on how the particular hospital, for instance, triages patients or the, the, the population they specialize. And so when we get explainable models, we, we may be also just explaining how this system works, but that may, or we may be explaining what um, clinical practitioners are thinking as part of their workup. And for instance, if they decide to order the test, that is, that is non-random and uh, who gets it and who doesn't, and that's information that leaks through. So, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges is going to be number one, can we get uh, actually fair data and um, uh, fair data represented and, uh, and remove the issues of, of hospital operations um, biases and clinical thought process and heuristics uh, in there and um, really keeping the context of what this model is for and what, it, what it's explaining. I think those are gonna be the key issues uh, for uh, coming up with something that, that's, that's actually useful uh, rather than like, for instance, an in, in exercise. Well, there's so much more I'd love to ask you about, Ben, uh, but we're running out of time. Um, this was a fascinating conversation and I learned so much from you. Do you have any other parting words? No, no, I think, uh, th thank you for, for doing this. It'll be interesting to, to hear what others uh, take on, on this is. Um, it's, a, it's a really complicated issue, of course. Um, yeah, now I would say, uh, the only thing that I, I, I could say is that, um, you know, one path forward uh, could be uh, just better data representation. So if we can, if we can get more data that, that's non-biased, um, that really reflects the underlying population, I think that, that'll be the ticket. And of course, how we can learn uh, from a in a, in a de uh, decentralized way without data sharing, such as via federated learning. I, I really see that as, as uh, uh, cautiously optimistic about that. And, and th thank you again. It was great, great talking with you.